0: This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, if you're new today, uh, we have been walking through... Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and uh, we are in chapter six. And so, a couple of weeks ago, we introduced a section on spiritual warfare. So, here's the big picture of the six chapters of Ephesians. Remember, okay? Chapters one through three are about our wealth, all right? The spiritual riches that are ours in Christ. And then from the beginning of chapter 4 through chapter 6 and verse 9, that's our walk, okay? That's the living out of the Christian life. And then from chapter 6 and verse 10 through the end of the book is our warfare, our, the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in as believers. So uh, two weeks ago, we, we looked closely at chapter 6 and verses 10 through 12, we sort of got into the section on uh, spiritual warfare. So thankful for Corby Amos uh, filling in for me last week. It's a mark of strength in our church that we've got several guys that are not even uh, on staff that are able to preach uh, so capably. And so I'm thankful for, for Corby. We're going to get back today um, to this section on spiritual warfare. And today we're going to review verses 10 through 12, but then we're going to get into Uh, Verses 13 and 14, where we get into the pieces of the armor of God. So we're talking today about being armed for battle. Being armed for battle. So let's look uh, together at Ephesians 6, and let's look at verses 10 through 14 this morning. The Apostle Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we dare not seek to stand in our own strength. We must stand, and we can only stand, in the strength of Your might. Armored with Your armor, And so we understand from your word that we're in a battle. We are in a spiritual battle every day, that there is a supernatural enemy who seeks to harm us. But as we sang earlier, we know that you are stronger. And so we pray that you would help us to to put on your armor, and we pray that you would show us today more about what that means. And so these are crucial moments together that can impact the whole course of our lives. And we pray that you would help us to give you our undivided attention right now. And that your spirit would speak to our minds and hearts through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On July 21st, 1861, the first major land battle of the Civil War took place at a little crossroads in northern Virginia. Uh, that some called Bull Run, others called Manassas. And as the the troops gathered for battle on that day, hundreds of people from Washington began to stream out of the city to get a glimpse of the battle from the surrounding hills. They were spectators. It was as if they almost considered war to be uh, entertainment. They were dressed in midsummer leisure apparel. Many of them were carrying picnic baskets. The historian Doris Kearns Goodwin said that one of the spectators remarked, as the Union forces seemed to be carrying the day, this is splendid, we'll be in Richmond by tomorrow. And then the Confederate forces counterattacked and the Green Union recruits broke and ran in all-out retreat in sheer terror. And they ran right in the direction of the spectators who joined them in a panic retreat in just sheer terror. You see, only the naive believe that you can be that close to a battle without being involved in it. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that when it comes to spiritual warfare, We are involved. We're big time involved. And as we saw in verse 12, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The issue for us it's not whether we're involved or uninvolved. The issue is whether or not we're going to stand or be overrun. And this passage tells us about how to stand. And we see that word stand several times here. You see it in verse 11. You see it twice in verse 13. You see it again in verse 14. And verse 11 is very, very clear about what enables us to stand. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. If we're going to stand in this battle, we must put on the whole armor of God. And so today, we're going to begin to unpack what that looks like as we get into the first couple of pieces of this armor. First of all, if we're going to stand, God's Word tells us that we must put on truth As a belt. Truth as a belt. So Paul says in verse 14, Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, in our modern wardrobe, we don't always wear a belt with everything we wear. If we have on, you know, t shirt or shorts or whatever, you know, we might not have a belt on. But a first century Roman soldier, which is what the armor of God is modeled after, as Paul walks, through all these pieces of armor, what he's thinking about is what a first century Roman soldier would have worn. First century Roman soldiers always wore their belt because the belt is what held their sword in place and it's what held their tunic together as well. Um, And he tells us to put on the belt of truth. What's he talking about there? Well, I think it would help be helpful in understanding that to see how Paul uses the word truth in other parts of this letter. So if you remember, in one thirteen, he says there, in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel. So in one thirteen, the truth is the good news of the gospel. In 4.21, he says, assuming that you have heard about him, him being Christ, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So here in 4.21, the truth is not only the good news of the gospel itself, but the scriptural doctrine that unpacks the gospel. So in one thirteen and 4.21, the truth is the gospel and the doctrine that really unpacks the Gospel. But Paul also, in Ephesians, speaks of truth in the sense of honesty, in the sense of being tellers of the truth. So, in 4.15, he says that we should be speaking the truth in love. And in 4.25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with love. So in putting all of these texts together where Paul talks about truth in Ephesians, I think we can come to two conclusions about what it means to fasten on the belt of truth. First of all, it means to tell the truth. To put on the belt of truth means that we are people of absolute honesty and integrity. Jesus said this about Satan in John eight forty four, 44, he said, When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so when we lie, we're, telling, we're, playing, we're playing the devil's game. And we're opening ourselves up to satanic attack, not to mention doing terrible harm to trust and relationships and, and all kinds of things. And so part of putting on the belt of truth is to be... Is to to speak the truth, to tell the truth. There's also a sense here, in addition to being people of honesty and integrity, to tell the truth means that we speak the truth of the Gospel to people. In fact, the context of, in, in, in chapter 4, when he says that we're to speak the truth in love, not only mean, is not only talking about the way that we speak the truth, which is to speak it in a loving way, but it's also talking about, about the fact that we should be sharing the truth of the gospel with people. So, to put on the belt of truth, first of all, means to tell the truth. Second, to put on the belt of truth means to hold fast to scriptural truth. Back in the 70s and 80s, when our denomination was trying to get back to its, regain its moorings theologically, theologically, and there was a lot of controversy going on, and there was a, a battle about you know, whether or not we were going to hold to the total truthfulness of the Bible. And one of the men who really stood strong for God's Word during those days was Dr. Adrian Rogers, who was pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And one day during those, that time of controversy, a delegation of people approached Adrian Rogers and Uh, they were basically trying to get him to compromise on the truthfulness of the Bible. And they reminded him that he had a lot to lose. And they reminded him that he was running for president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he was pastor of an historic uh, church, and it was sort of a veiled threat, or maybe not so veiled a a threat. And, And Dr. Rogers listened to them, and he said, I don't have to be president of the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> I don't have to be pastor of Bellevue. I don't even have to live. But I will never compromise the Word of God. Let me tell you, there are all kinds of things that we can compromise on. There are all kinds of things that we can be flexible about and should be. But when it comes to the issue of whether, of whether we're going to hold to the total truthfulness of Scripture, I mean, we just can't budge there. Because if you don't hold fast to God's Word, I mean, you have no basis for standing on anything. You have no basis for saying what's moral or immoral. You have no basis for saying what's right or wrong. You have no basis for saying what's true and, and false. You have no basis for raising children or building a family or building a life if you don't hold fast to scriptural truth. And, you know, we should be so thankful for the the men and women that have come before us that have done that. Um, You know, people in this church, people like Dr. Rogers and our denomination, and going further back than that, the first song that we sung today, uh, A Mighty Force, was, was, was written by Martin Luther. One night in April of 1521, Luther... Was ushered into a torchlit room in the city of Worms, Germany. And before him sat the Holy Roman Emperor. And in front of the emperor was a, a table, and, and w- that had all of Luther's writings piled on top of it. Writings in which Luther had said, on the basis of Scripture, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone. In other words, the biblical gospel. And the emperor said, will you recant what you've written in these writings? And Luther said, if I can be... He, he said, you know, if I can be refuted by Scripture, I'll not only recant what I've written, I'll, I'll, burn, I'll burn what I've written. But if I can't be... Re- Refuted by scripture, then I can't retract, I can't recant anything that I've written. And then Luther said this, he said, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. There's a great biography of Martin Luther by the title of those last three words, Here I Stand, by Roland Dayton. I commend it to you. But here's a question this morning. Will you stand? Will you stand? If you don't stand on God's Word, you won't stand. You'll be overrun. And so to put on the belt of truth means that we hold fast to scriptural truth. Okay? The belt... Of truth. Second, the breastplate of righteousness. We are to put on righteousness as a breastplate. He says in verse 14 Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, for a first century Roman soldier, the breastplate covered from the chest uh, down over the abdomen. And so, it, it, what was it protecting? Protecting the heart, protecting the uh, vital organs. And so it was this, the breastplate was absolutely essential. What does Paul mean when he tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness? Now, in, the, in Paul's writings, he uses the word righteousness in two senses. And we're going to look at both of them. First of all, Many times when he uses the word righteousness, he's talking about practical righteousness. In other words, living a a righteous life. Righteous living. That's the context of how he uses it in chapter 4 and verse 24 when he says, "...and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." And then immediately after that verse... He unpacks what righteous living looks like. Speaking the truth. Sharing our financial resources. Not sinning in our anger. Not sinning with our tongue. Practicing kindness and compassion. Practicing forgiveness. Putting away all sexual sin. Walking in love. Now, notice that almost all those, other, those things involve how we treat other people. You see, we don't practice righteousness as believers, to gain acceptance with God. If, if you're in Christ, you're already accepted by God. And we're going to talk about what that means more in a few minutes. And so we don't, we don't practice righteousness anymore as believers to try to gain uh, God's acceptance. Um, because God doesn't really you know, need our good works. Um, but our neighbors do. Our neighbors do. Um, and... So, they need our good works. They need our acts of righteousness. Really for two reasons. First of all, just the practical help that we can give them. But also, they need to see God. And when you love people, when you do acts of righteousness and kindness for people, then Jesus said they'll be able to see God. So Jesus says in Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But listen, part of growing in righteous living comes from what we're going to talk about next. And that's understanding the second way in which Paul talks about righteousness. And that is imputed righteousness. The Bible teaches that when we trust in Jesus as Savior, that the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. That's what we mean when we talk about imputed righteousness. It's what Paul is talking about in Romans 3. 21 and 22, when he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, if we attempt to make ourselves right with God through our obedience to God's law, we are going to fall short because none of us obeys God's law perfectly. And so therefore, we need a righteousness apart from the law. Great news. Wonderful news. Jesus Christ has a perfect record of righteousness. And here's what happened on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took our record of sin upon Himself. And when we trust in Him, He credits His perfect record of righteousness to us. That's the heart of the Gospel, is that we've exchanged records. On the cross, Jesus took our record of sin, and when we trust in Him as our Savior, um, His perfect record of righteousness is credited to us. Tim Keller says this, in Christianity, the moment we believe, God imputes Christ's perfect performance to us as if it were our own and adopts us into His family. In other words, God can say to us, just as He once said to Christ, You are my child whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now listen, when we really get that truth down deep in us, it it replaces Doubt and insecurity before God with a, a a wonderful sense of assurance and confidence before god, and this is just so essential because remember from a couple of weeks ago uh, what what does satan do what What is the very name Satan means? It means accuser. he loves to accuse that's part of spiritual warfare, and what we need to understand is that because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, all of His accusations just fall to the ground. John Stott says this, to have been justified by His grace through simple faith in Christ crucified, to be clothed with a righteousness which is not one's own, but Christ, to stand before God, not condemned, but accepted. This is an essential defense against the accusing conscience, and against the slanderous attacks of the evil one. You know, early in my Christian life, I really went through a struggle because as I was seeking to grow in Christ, my conscience was becoming more and more sensitive. I was becoming more and more sensitive about my own shortcomings and and sins, which was a good thing. Um, But what was not such a good thing was that at that point, I, I didn't know... What to do with that? I mean, and, and what it took was, as I studied God's Word, and especially the book of Romans, um, what I be- began to understand was that I needed to stop focusing on, on me because I was becoming very introspective. I was be- and it was robbing me of my joy in and, 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 and Christ because I was constantly uh, just, just looking at my, my own uh, shortcomings and sins and just kind of becoming more and more uh, inward-looking. And what I saw was that I need to take my eyes off of me (laughs) and my performance and I need to put my eyes on Christ and His performance and and understand that that, that His perfect record of righteousness had been credited to my account and that my sins, past, present, and future, were under the blood of Christ. And just understanding that, you know, just gave such a... Um, it was so liberating and it, it, it freed me to, to want to live for the Lord even more knowing that I was already accepted by Him. Uh, not based on my performance, but based on the performance of Jesus for me on the cross and in His resurrection. Um, it's just absolutely huge in the Christian life. Absolutely huge in spiritual warfare that we understand that. And so, if you are prone to be introspective, if you're you're prone to have a a very uh, sensitive, maybe an overly sensitive, tender uh, conscience and sort of uh, you feel like you're on trial every day, friend, let me tell you something. If you're in Christ, the trial is over. It's over. And the verdict has already been spoken over your life. And the verdict is this. In Christ, you are not guilty, but righteous. And it's not about your righteousness. It's about the perfect righteousness of Jesus that's been imputed to you. Now get that deep in your soul and rejoice in it and live in it. Um, it's just vital, you know, that we understand that. And, and the reason that we're not on trial anymore is because Jesus Christ went to trial for us. Jesus Christ went to trial on our behalf. A mock trial. Jesus Christ took, took the guilty verdict. He took, took the sin. He took all of our sin. It was placed on Him. Took our place on the cross and and rose from the grave in victory. And now in Christ, listen to me, we can live all of life under the banner it is finished. That's joy. That's freedom, that's peace, that's assurance. And when we get that deep within us, I mean it just replaces that that doubt and insecurity before God with just a, a massive, wonderful confidence before God and, and, a, and a peace before God as you, you rest in the finished work of, of Christ. I'll tell you what else it does it frees us to really love people for the first time. Now, how does that work? Well, if you think that you need to do good works acts of righteousness in order to make yourself right before God and establish your own righteousness before God, your motive for loving people is always going to be mixed. It can't help but be. Because you're doing good works for other people to try to earn favor with God. But when you know that you've already been accepted by God, um, then you can just love people because you've been so loved. You know, you're, just, you're blown away by God's grace and how much you are loved by the Father and already accepted by the Father. And what that does is it just, it, it frees you to just really love people from the heart because you've been so loved yourself. And it just spills out because, you know, you're, you're, you're filled with a sense of joy and God's grace and acceptance and therefore you can just love people to, uh, because you've been so loved. Not you're not trying to gain points with God anymore or anything like that. You're just loving people because you've been so loved yourself. And that's exactly what 1 John 4 teaches. It says, We love. Why? Because he first loved us. It all flows from that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the armor that you have given us. We pray that you would help us to put it on every day. Lord, help us to fasten on that belt of truth. Lord, we pray that you would make us people of just absolute honesty and integrity and telling the truth. We pray that you would also make us tellers of truth in the sense that that we would um, be loving people enough to, to, to share with them the truth of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hold fast to... The truth. We're living in a world where uh, there can be a lot of pressure to, to, to compromise on that. We, we pray that You would help us to, to always hold to the total truthfulness of Your Word. Help us to put on the breastplate of righteousness in the sense of practical righteousness, righteous, holy living, and, and also uh, imputed righteousness, just understanding uh, who we are in Christ, that, um, that His perfect record of righteousness has, has been credited to our account um, and that we can, can live in that acceptance, live in that freedom, um, that our sins have been taken care of um, and that when you look at us, um, you don't see our very mixed <laughs> record. Of righteousness, which is like filthy rags, but you, you see the perfect righteousness of your Son. Lord, help us to, to live in that as a, 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 a bulwark, a breastplate against the, the slanderous attacks of the evil one. And as a result of that, just be able to live for you uh, and, and love other people from our heart. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're here today and you've got spiritual questions, we don't want you to leave here without being able to talk with someone. And so in a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And if you'd like to talk with someone uh, more about Christ and a relationship with Him and and what that means, I'm going to be here at the front. Others will be as well that would would love to talk with you. You can talk with us then or or after the service. We'll be here uh, for you. Uh, If you're here today and God's speaking to you about uh, being a part of this church family, uh, we would love for you to to come. We'd love to to welcome you today. If there's any need in your life uh, that you need prayer for, we invite you to, to come. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need. to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.